0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the program, we have a special panel discussion on Canada's recently released fall economic statement. Fidelity Portfolio Manager David Wolf and political strategist David Hurley and Corey Tanaik break down the recent federal fiscal update and the implications it may have for investors. The panelists speak to host Pamela Ritchie about the report's main highlights, which include new measures to tackle the housing crisis, as well as the overall financial health of the country. This podcast is recorded on November 22, 2023.
1: And I'm I'm gonna begin with all of you just sort of passing your lot on what you think the mini budget, the fall economic statement, ultimately moved the needle on one way or the other. David Wolf, I'll begin with you if you don't mind. What is different today than was, say, yesterday?
2: So the frank answer there is I'm not sure that there really is that much that's different. Uh, And I'm speaking from an economic financial point of view and and David and Corey will talk about the, the political side but whatever you thought about the outlook for Canada economically and financially 24 hours ago, you almost certainly think the same thing today. I mean, they were um, tinkering at the edges with respect to specific policies, but there's no major change in fiscal policy here. There's no major surprise in the budgetary projections to the extent that they're um, particularly relevant to investors, which I'm not sure that there's full credibility there, um, shall we say, and there never is. So, yeah, I mean, wherever the needle was and whatever your perception was of the government or of the outlook, et cetera, it's probably still the same today.
1: Okay. David Hurley, uh, I'll come to you next on this. Uh, What do you think, again, was accomplished by moving things forward or not?
3: Well, I certainly don't think that this particular uh, statement is going to have any immediate or short-term political impact. And I don't think it was designed to. I don't think they're expecting it to. I don't think it is actually a mini budget. I think it because it, it didn't have any of those kinds of measures in it. It was sort of a throwback to an old style economic statement that really does just update the finances and maybe lay out some messaging track going forward. My takeaway from it was uh, was essentially two things. First of all, the government's in political trouble for a variety of reasons, um, and Mr. Polyev is only one of them. The biggest reasons that they're in trouble are that they've been in office for a long time and people are tired of them, and second of all, that the economy is lousy. And I think it was key in the speech yesterday that Ms. Freeland interpreted their mandate as going at least two more years. And I think that they believe that they, if they get out of the Bank of Canada's way, the Bank of Canada can bring this down to a relatively soft landing, get inflation back to its target, and that 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 can happen maybe over the course of the next year and then they'll have a year of decent economic news that they can that they can launch into the second thing is that i took away is their continued emphasis on a responsible fiscal track and i don't think that is intended to reassure the markets about their responsibility i think that is intended to position against what they will con- what they will portray mr poliev as having an irresponsible fiscal track based on the cuts he's going to make. And so I think on the fiscal side, they're trying to triangulate Paulyev and the ND.
1: Fascinating, okay, thank you for your thoughts. Corey, weigh in here. What what do you think has changed and you know, reaction to what David and David have said? What, what do you think, Corey?
4: Well, I, I largely agree with David in terms of what they, what's ailing them, uh, but I think I would add to that that they've really lost, I think, their narrative around the middle class through uh, through the past couple of years, and and maybe you know even through the uh, some of the pandemic as well. But 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 particularly more acutely uh, after the last election, when they had to lean very heavily on the NDP for the government's survival, and you had these confidence supply agreements that are making demands of them uh, around areas that are really outside the middle class. So you know, they're going to have a, a universal dental care program, but it's income tested towards uh, uh, lower income folks. Uh, you know, their emphasis in the housing areas being more around rental housing, when we know that millennials and a lot of new Canadians, they're renting now. And the whole problem is they don't wanna be renting. They wanna be able to get into the housing market and they're finding it to be unaffordable. Uh, that was before we saw interest rates going up. Since interest rates have been going up and we've been dealing with inflation, uh, you know, while housing prices have softened a little bit, it's become even more unattainable for them in order, uh, you know, in order to get a, a mortgage. And the things that you saw even in the in the fall economic statement yesterday was just more of the same. I, I think that's kind of how I would describe the uh, the statement: more of the same. It's more tailored uh, things to the wrong people. If you're looking at this from a political perspective. Uh, Where, you know, who wins an election in in Canadian federal politics is is the party that best appeals to the broad swath of middle-class voters. And I think they're being left on the margin of their electoral coalition, whereas when they were politically more successful, they were in the middle. You know, so you add that on top of the things that that, that David mentioned uh, around just the government is getting a bit long in the tooth and the economy isn't well, and you add all those three together and you get to 26% support. That's kind of the the problem they're
1: facing. (laughs) Okay, interesting, and good point to, to leave it on. David Wolf, bring in the macro discussion there for us, the balancing of what's being spent, the deficit itself, how much is being thrown at it now in terms of payments. That was part of the discussion. It's part of the criticism of any sort of fiscal energy being spent, money being spent, in an inflationary environment, tell us tell us where this changes, or, or if the comments were useful in your mind.
2: Yeah, so I thought David's comments with respect to getting out of the bank's way was a really interesting way to frame it, um, because uh, the government has clearly heard the message from the governor, um, and from a, a number of private sector economists too that have said what is obviously right, which is if you spent less money, it would be less inflationary, and interest rates wouldn't have to be as high. That's just how. The economy works so you know it makes sense from an economic point of view that you wouldn't have uh, if you're worried about the high level of interest rates combating the high level of inflation you don't want to spend a whole bunch more money and make it worse so that that's fairly clear Um, going forward and, and again you know David and Corey's comments are very interesting to me in the sense of if politically you're thinking about well we know 2024 is going to be not a very good year for the economy but we have hope that 2025 will be better, and the Bank of Canada can cut rates, and inflation is down, and um, everybody is going to be happy. That's a, a pretty narrow needle to thread, if, mm-hmm. if I get the analogy right. Like it, it's very clear that even if interest rates do come down, and it's not clear that they're going to come down in any meaningful way on any visible horizon, um, you're still going to get all of the resets that are coming for mortgages at higher rates, and you're doing so against a backdrop where incomes are already under strain and is David and Corey mentioned affordability in various ways is, is being strained as well. So it's 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 hard for me as a, a former economic forecaster, including at the bank, to see a world where you have a soft landing, an okay 2024, and a strong rebound in 2025. That's just a, like I said, a, a narrow needle to thread.
1: Is that different from the US? I won't spin out too far on this, but I just want to get sort of some some relative. Uh, pieces of grounding
2: here. Yeah, so I mean, the the profile in the US is fairly similar. The US and Canada have a really big difference at this point though, which makes, and and you and I have talked about this before, a soft landing a lot less likely in Canada, right? So um, the big issue is productivity. US productivity is great, Canadian productivity is not. And it's actually been going in the wrong direction. So if you have higher productivity, you can get inflation down and still have the economy grow. That's true in the U.S., not as much in Canada.
1: Okay, it's an, it's an interesting, subtle, and important difference. And we're going to talk about the investment implications of that in, in just a little while. David Hurley, um, Christian Freeland, the, the finance minister, did say, you know, there's expectation of job losses coming, uh, sketching a recession of some sort probably coming in the next year. And as you mentioned, getting this out, getting through it, and then sort of building back up before an election seems to be what, what you feel the message was just go a bit deeper david hurley into what you heard the finance minister say about how the economy what it has to go through
3: listen i think that they people really are feeling there's something going on in uh the economies of the western world which is not to say that inflation isn't difficult right now not to say that interest rates aren't difficult right now but there is a sour mood About the economy and a sour mood about the country that isn't really explained by the economic metrics. So, the government is, in a sense, fighting ghosts too. Because, and it's true of Joe Biden and it is true of all of the European leaders, that there's a massive disconnect between the actual state of the economy as economists assess it and the way that Canadians feel about it. And so, they're in a tough spot where they've got to sound like they've had their uh, hand on the tiller of this thing and sound like they've been doing smart things for the economy, but also acknowledge what people are feeling. And I, you know, that's a tough balance to get right. And as I listened to the speech yesterday, and I I, I may be the only mutant that actually listened to the speech, but as I listened to the speech, you know, I thought the first bunch of it was a, a lot of talk about how successful the government's being at managing the economy and how many goods, you? how many good signs there are in the economy in terms of foreign direct investment, et cetera. And I just thought anybody that was watching would have turned away, would have turned off because what she was talking, what she was saying does not resemble what people are feeling.
1: Okay. Yep. Yeah. No, very good point. I, I, I mean, I, that, that struck me as well. Um, Corey, Tell us what you think is not going to work in terms of, I mean, I'm assuming you have uh, something to say on this, towards a 2025 restart of what the Liberals are hoping for. Like, What, what were the pieces in there last night that you thought just aren't going to fly and, and either you know take them further from their goal or, or just aren't enough? What, what do you think there? What, what were the pieces that hung there for you?
4: Well, I think it, it's a loss of, of narrative. And so like, I'll build on what, what David was saying. You really, in, in political communications, you got to meet people where they are. And where they are is, is, is feeling a, an enormous amount of economic anxiety. And uh, even where we are experiencing growth, and I'll you know, maybe point to the U.S. a little bit, where the economy is doing better, how that growth is being shared across the electorate is not even. So you, know, you can have the economy growing and you can have wealth being created in the economy but it doesn't mean that that huge swaths of of the of uh, people actually operating in that economy aren't actually seeing their lot in life getting worse and so the the process that you're seeing here in Canada for a lot of people who are going into a mortgage renewal or they're seeing friends or neighbors who are going into that, you know they're going to be spending a thousand fifteen hundred uh, dollars more a month uh, for the for the joy of living in the house they are today and they may see the amortization of that mortgage that you know they had 12 years left to pay on it, and they're back to 25, and so they're they're not feeling happy at all about their lot in life, and and I think you're seeing that uh, you know play itself out. So if your if your idea of your political communications is to get out there and argue with the public that you know what's wrong is their lying eyes, not you know what's actually going on in the economy, you're you're not going to see them say, oh well, I never thought of that. You're going to see them say. These guys don't get it. They don't understand what's going on for me. They don't understand why I'm staying up at night worrying about making ends meet because it's not just, you know, on that side of the equation, energy prices are up and energy prices are up in part because of the carbon tax, which uh, is something that if you didn't think before, which most Canadians did, you certainly did after they exempted home heating fuel. In, in one region of the country, but not probably for most people are <laughs> their voter coalition, like half of it's here in Ontario, are, are saying, well, but I, I get nothing. So you're okay. saying this is a problem, but you're not doing anything for me. So you add all these things up and, it, and it's a, a narrative disconnect with how people are feeling and the messages that the government's putting out around their own economic management. And, and the two just are on. They're not, they're not just in, on different pages, they're not just in different chapters or books, they're in different solar systems and different universes right now. Okay. The gulf well. between them is so far as to be, you know, uh, impossible to bridge without the use of a spaceship. This,
1: this may or may not be the right question for you, but I mean, if they spent more, which would put pressure on the interest rate story, would people be happier?
2: Um, so to the extent to which inflation and interest rates and obviously, Mortgage affordability are the big concerns mm-hmm. with respect to consumers. Spending more is not going to solve either. It's okay. going to make it worse.
1: Right. right. Okay. Um, Let's dig I, into this.
2: Yeah. I mean, so the the comments are, are you know fascinating, um, with respect to the you know I guess the dissonance of the message of the statement versus what people are feeling, and so I didn't watch the speech. I did read 100, all 131 pages of the. The economic statement in uh, in detail, but you know, one gets the same sort of message that it sounds sunny in a sense. Yes. and you know, to some degree, I mean, you know, the numbers are the numbers. But one of the things to understand, and this this comes back a little bit to David's comment about the Western world having a sour mood, which I think is exactly right. But there is a big difference between the U.S. and Canada. So in Canada, what we've seen is the economy has still generally been growing, and unemployment still has generally been low. But that's happening against the backdrop of very high population growth and obviously immigration, whether it be permanent immigration or students or foreign workers or what have you. And so per capita, so per person, mm-hmm. GDP or productivity or whatever is actually going down. And it's gone down over the last five years, first such period since the early 1990s and we remember what that recession was yeah. like. So it's not just you know the, the feeling that's dissonant, but the facts on the ground are that the economy for most people is effectively in recession and the aggregate numbers just aren't showing it because the denominator in terms of the number of people has been going
3: up. The government spending side of things is really interesting because I think it's, it's, it's quite easy for people to get the politics of this wrong. And I think that you know when you're as old a government as the Trudeau government is, and this is not even a comment on them, it's just a question of old governments, if you get reelected, It's less because there was hope and optimism about what you might do with your twelfth year in office, and more because there's opposition is unacceptable, that something about your opponent renders them unacceptable to win. And the in the in the fall economic statement yesterday, I see the government setting up the most classic liberal trap around the debt and government spending. And if they can bait Polyev into a balanced budget fight. Um, If they can convince Canadians that Paul is going to cut billions and billions of dollars out of the uh, government spending when he takes office, and if he is silent on what those things would be, as he will be, that's the classic liberal trap for Conservatives. Because balanced budgets are fine in the abstract, but they're not important. And cuts to spending are a lot more unpopular than than, uh, deficits are. So, I mean, I think the politics of this, you know, Polyev's riding high on an economic message that he's had a lot of success in driving around inflation and interest rates. But when the rubber hits the road, his prescription is cutting spending and that's gonna be a big fight.
2: Yeah, so I actually wanna ask Corey a question on that one. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I'm I'm not a political person and, and certainly not a political strategist, but it seems to me that the economics of this are, if you cut, government spending in a very significant way that allows inflation to come down, that allows interest rates to come down a lot, and actually probably is perceived as net helping the consumer, even though generally speaking, it's been a bad thing to cut spending. Is that an argument that the conservative side can make at this point? Or would they I, make? I think it's,
4: you know, it's to say that it's a classic tra- trap is true. It's a classic trap that has worked in the past. And I think the, the Getting into that conversation, I think, is, is, is folly for the Conservatives. I think you want to point at the government in terms of, of its actions. And if you're going to do something that's going to cut spending, it better be, be cutting some taxation revenue on the other side. So look, I think the focal point is going to be around the carbon tax, which the Bank of Canada says will have a one-time benefit by eliminating that on the consumer side of, of bringing inflation down. And that's also something that's popular to do. Uh, with voters. So I think you'll see them, you know, aim more at that uh, in terms of, you know, the, the, the other part of that trap the conservatives have gotten caught in, in the past is, is putting out a very detailed costed platform, you know, where the parliamentary budget officer can look at it and pressure test it and, and, uh, and they can say, oh, see, all, all the math adds up here. That, successful conservative parties, you know, including Doug Ford's, haven't gone that approach in their in their recent election campaigns, and I, I would say there's a reason why. That uh, well, there's a handful of people who are economists and, and commentators who like to see that sort of thing, like you know, uh, my friend Andrew Coyne salivates at the prospect of going through those numbers and poking holes in it, but. Voters don't, and so you know whether it's things like a, you know, a climate change plan. You know the Ford one was uh, cap and trade, cap taxes and trade. Kathleen Wynne that worked a lot better than Aaron O'Toole's very detailed one uh, that came with <laughs> uh, things that uh, you know like solar powered blenders and e-bikes. You know one worked a lot better than the other, and so like I, I think they'll you know if they're smart they're going to avoid the temptation of being too specific around that stuff. And try to keep the lens on the most unpopular element of of uh, of uh, policies that have you know been detrimental in terms of causing inflation. That would be the carbon tax, which
3: is by far the least popular of them.
1: Okay, so let's. Talk, I, I want to sort of in land the last week of the
3: election the campaign, campaign, you're going to hear Justin Trudeau demanding to know what Pierre Polyev would cut. That's yeah, what you're going to sure. hear in
4: the and, last chapter, and 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 I think you'd say, uh, his answer should be some version of the number of liberal MPs in the House of Commons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh,
1: uh. Let's let's drop the housing discussion in here. Um, the question has been: Where does immigration and the amount of immigration fit within the narrative of Canadians who can't find housing? Um, how well do you think this discussion and the statement ultimately? went to at least solving well solving any piece of it short term medium term long term 7000 houses apparently are going to be built um what does this do towards the overall situation nothing's going to change tomorrow david wolf
2: yeah so first of all with respect to housing or the economy as a whole no forecast i could make is as good as the forecast that uh David and Corey just made about the dialogue. Yeah, yes. no, that I, I would be very surprised if that doesn't doesn't actually happen. No, so with housing, I mean, and and this has been uh, first of all the the measures that were announced yesterday are I think of a uh, of a package with measures that have been basically in every budget over the last gotcha. several years, which are maybe they help on the margin, but they clearly haven't had the the, the large effect that that folks would have wanted. Um, I think with housing, and this has been true for some time, it's a bit of a dangerous game that you play. So you think about a housing market, demand can swing around a lot, right? right. Supply is pretty fixed, right? So a lot of these measures that are going to help construction, those buildings aren't going to get built for four, five, six years. And so what happens is housing markets swing around because supply is fixed and demand moves around. What's happened recently is Demand has gone way up because a lot more people have showed up than, than was expected, and supply can't adjust as fast. But what can happen over time, and I think this is a real risk further out with respect to the economy and to, to some degree fiscally and such, is if you roll it forward and say, well, four years from now when all of this housing supply is going to come on, do we need it? You know, is there a change to immigration? Is there a change to population where you get then the pressure the other way, which is a lot of empty houses because people didn't come? So it's, you know, housing markets get really volatile because of that contrast between demand and supply. And we've seen it on the upside. And I think there is some risk that you see it on the downside. You still have to do it because housing supply is an issue. But it could look very different when the supply actually comes online.
1: Well, there's sort of a bolus of supply X years down the road, whether that's, that's going to be soaked up, mopped up.
2: Yeah, it would be great if we built it 10 years ago. Yeah. But, you know, we... <laughs>
1: well, Corey, can I ask you, you know, how, how did the... How does the conservative party chase this issue? I mean, there's, we, we hear about it all the time and, and a lot of it has to do with changing policy. Um, again, your reaction on the housing front from what was said last night.
4: Well, I'm not worried about a, a, a market collapse here, uh, you know, five or 10 years from now because like the housing deficit is so massive, like we're, we're short something like 5 million housing uh, units you know, today. So, and we're going through, you know, record levels of immigration not just you know people who are coming in through the regular immigration route, but we've seen you know just in Ontario, I think we went from about 150,000 uh, foreign students to 411,000 uh, foreign students this year. Like it, it's it's a ginormous amount of people that are coming in that are putting pressure on housing supply. Uh, and you now this this plays out, and I'm sure uh, David will you know speak to this a little bit more, but. Uh, you know this doesn't play the same for everyone in the economy everyone uh, every voter out there. if you are uh, someone who, who has a home already and it's it's largely paid off or paid off and you're you're looking at that uh, rapidly expanding value of that over the last you know ten fifteen years is is funding your retirement and it's and high housing prices are viewed positively by those voters and so saying oh we 're going to bring down housing prices. Not everybody likes that. There are some voters who are like, well, that's my retirement you're talking about bringing down. I'm not entirely enthusiastic about it. But for another set of voters, people who are sort of millennials now, or people who've come to Canada as a foreign worker or through the immigration program, one of the big things that they are looking for is to, to get into that housing market. And for them, it's completely unaffordable. So I think particularly for millennials, it, it, it manifests itself as an issue of generational fairness in a way where they say, you know, the social contract, you know, the post-World War II social contract was you go and you get an education, you get a good job and, you know, you're, you're living your life, you know, sort of as a responsible, fully functioning, tax paying individual in society. You get a house, you get a mortgage, you get to, uh, you know, raise your family in a setting similar to what you were, grew up in. And, and, and the fact is that's completely unattainable for most of those folks, unless they're leaning on the, you know, the bank of mom and dad, the chances that they're getting into the housing market today are, are between slim and none and slim left town. So it's just not a, you know, not a happy moment for them. And they're not going to to reward any housing policy. That's, you know, kind of what's on offer from the liberals. Okay. Oh, more rental units. I don't want rental units. I want a home. I want a, I want a mortgage. So anyway, right, I think
1: well, that's and, sort of the
3: dynamic that's playing out. David Hurley? Well, I think I I agree with most of what Corey said, and I certainly agree with him that rental units, while our people need rental units right now, they're not aspirational. Um, Most people, especially people with a family, aspire to a single family unit uh, dwelling with a yard. Understand that. Um, But, you know, politically, this is a a triumph uh, of spin over substance because there is... No government policy that is going to materially affect this. And I mean, you listen to the number of homes that CMHC says we need to build over the next 10 years. And then you hear governments say, well, this is going to unlock 15,000 here and 7,000 over there. I mean, these are not rounding errors, um, even in the number of units that are required to build. So, 5.8 uh,
1: million by 2030.
3: Exactly. So there you go. So 7000 doesn't get you materially closer uh, to that to that number. And so, you know, really and and no party has a policy that's going to fix this. The difference in policy between the two parties is pretty much tomato, tomato at this point. Um, The reality is that it's just going to be a question of who can convince people that they care about it because nobody's going to have fixed it or solved it.
1: Right. Okay. Really interesting that. David Wolf, well, what do you think about some of those numbers?
2: Yeah. So just let me make a, a point to Corey and, and David and yourself reference that CMHC yeah. study. So it doesn't mean what people think it means. Ah. So the headline is we're short 5 million, 5.8 million. Said what they actually did was try to calculate, and this is all an estimation, um, how many new homes do you need to expand the supply so that homes become affordable which means house prices go down Draw.
1: 50%. <laughs> okay, the which doesn't make everyone happy, of course. Which mentioned. doesn't make
2: everyone happy. So it's not that we don't have enough homes for people. There is a deficit it seems that you know we don't have enough actual rooms and actual units for the number of people. But it's not 5 million short. It's if you built 5 million homes house prices would come down, you know, 50%. I can't recall the exact number in the study, but that does mean something quite different. From. Indeed. Yeah. So that would and, mean an
3: entirely different group of people taking up their pitchforks and storming Parliament Hill.
2: That's right. I, I don't know how you get around somebody's gonna take up a pitchfork. <laughs> well, no, comments
3: about, no, we have to stir you know,
4: the conversation away. Has it. <laughs> but but, hey, hey. but, right, but who and uh, but who and uh to, and how many I think is important. Like so, you know, I, I think you want to get back to a balance It's something like that that post war social contract where there is a path where you might have to stretch in order to get a down payment, but, but where it's you know, 25, you know, you do that and it's 25 years to pay off your mortgage, not 25 years to save up your down payment. Like that's, that's the balancing point where I think you, you find a happy medium. And, and I think, you know, where, where government policy is probably more on the mark if you want to do something uh, that's going to bend the curve on that, but also be popular with, with folks like David and myself who are already in the housing market, it's to say, all right, we're going to change zoning rules and things so you can actually easily put a uh, an apartment in your basement and you can rent that out. And so you're actually going to help with the housing crisis, but you're actually going to increase revenue for yourself and you're not, you know, you're actually being able to participate in the housing market, perhaps in a slightly different way, which you feel like, you know, you're benefiting from as well as, a, as an incumbent in the market, so to speak. So I do think there's some things out there that, that would be smarter but you know large-scale rental that is directed towards low-income individuals <laughs> it sounds like a lose 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 to me from a political uh, perspective
1: okay david hurley and then i want to get into actually how you sort of invest the overall macro picture in canada and we'll bring david wolf in obviously to, 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 but david hurley your response to, to what was just said there
3: just on house <clears throat> housing i wanted to add a a little bit which i found really curious in the speech yesterday because you would you would you would think that the primary obligation for getting new homes built would be with the municipalities. Right. And then you would think that next it would be the provincial governments that would have the authority to get municipalities. And as recently as a month or so ago the prime minister was saying this is not my job. This is somebody else's job to build houses. Yesterday in the speech David I'm interested in your take on this. I thought I heard the finance minister say that the federal government was going to lead the fight on building houses and on housing affordability
2: so <laughs>
1: do you remember in the hundred pages that you write um
2: well the that that sounds to me, David, like part of that messaging rather than fact because to your point and, and we all know this, housing is primarily a municipal and provincial jurisdiction, so there's a limited amount that the feds can do to affect this um but it sounds good to say that, that they're leading the fight. Right. So that may
3: be- Although it's curious as to why they'd want to own it. So that is, I mean,
2: I, I, don't have an answer there and, and that I guess is a political question for, for you and Corey, but it may be, and I'm, you know, political speculation, this is clearly the number one issue for folks. So do they want to be seen as trying to solve the problem, even if it's kind of not possible for them to do it?
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's yeah, interesting we'll what the end game is. Corey,
4: did you want to say something quickly? Well, this is a, the conundrum that federal governments always have, that a lot of the things that connect most with voters are actually at the provincial level. So, you know, if, if we look at things like healthcare, healthcare is a provincial responsibility. The federal government has long meddled in it by uh, by buying their way into the market through, mm-hmm. uh, through uh, the Canada Health Act. But it is clearly 100% provincial and you see it in other areas too. Like, you know, the overreach that you saw from the government on impact uh, assessments uh, uh, on the environmental side, clearly, you know, according to the Supreme Court, an overreach. But they're doing it because these are things that connect more with voters. You see them buying their way into transit, you know, and now housing. So, you know, it, it, the reason they're doing it is, is, is exactly that. It, it's something, you know, where the rubber hits the road with, with, with voters and it's in another level of government. So, they bring out their checkbook and they buy their way in and say, hey, we're the ones who are leading. You're ask most Canadians, they think the federal government's in charge of healthcare, not provinces, even though the, the opposite is true.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. And the partnerships, you have to watch those very carefully how those all stack up and, and what they say. Given um, the macro situation in this country, David Wolf, uh, where interest rates are, we heard last night in the in the fall state economic statement, job losses are expected. Wrap some of the comments in there, and if you could tell us what you think it'll take the Bank of Canada to cut rates here? What's it gonna take?
2: So first of all, let me step back and talk about how we view it from a a positioning lens, right? So my group is responsible for uh, the multi-asset funds for for Fidelity Canada, as mentioned about 75 billion and, and we have significant holdings in Canada as part of that. And we have been and we remain somewhat underweight Canadian assets, particularly the Canadian dollar. And the reason is primarily that Canada is a lot more interest rate sensitive than the United States, right? And that's partly because we don't have the productivity uplift and partly because we have a lot higher debt and a much shorter duration mortgage market than in the U.S. So the hit that U.S. is gonna take from these higher rates is gonna hit harder in Canada and the exchange rate is gonna have to absorb that. To your point, what that means is the Bank of Canada is almost certainly gonna have to cut rates sooner and more forcefully than the Fed. Is that six months from now or 12 or 18 months? Nobody knows, um, but what it is going to take, I think, is a more serious downturn than certainly what was incorporated into the fall economic statement okay. yesterday. And even the downside scenario. So within the statement, um, there is some scenario analysis. Say, okay, here is the outlook, but if we shock the system with a bit more of a downside scenario, what does the fiscal track look like? Upside scenario. The downside scenario in the statement was fairly mild recession. Recession that ends. You know, sometime in the next year or so, it improves to the earlier conversation. Uh, in 2025, interest rates are a little bit higher. Inflation doesn't come down quite as much. To me, that's not the real downside scenario. The real downside scenario is that all of us, and, and Corey mentioned the sort of, well, we're obviously short a lot of housing, and we're obviously going to get a lot of population. And so it reminds me a little bit of, uh, and it's maybe stirring the pot a little bit, Ireland 15 years ago, right? So in Ireland, you had a very strong housing market, you had gobs of debt taken on against it, and it was all rationalized by immigration population growth. And that was from the EU and the Eastern European countries that had come in and Irish expats coming back to Ireland. And what happened was, well, as it turns out, the people came, but all of the front running that had gone on with the building and the speculation, what have you, meant Irish house prices went down, you know, over 50%, the economy was in recession for five years and, you know, Irish banks, some of them had to be nationalized. I don't think that's going to happen in Canada, but there are downside scenarios that are a lot more dire than what was incorporated into either private sector forecasts or the economic statement. And, you know, where, where I sit in terms of the opportunities that I have in the funds, it's global. And the Canadian risk is more acute than than in most places, so why would we take that risk?
1: I, you had a great article in the in the Global Mail over the weekend, and it and it laid out uh, after the, how you were balancing things, and it is pretty close to 60-40, i.e., bullish, but not necessarily Canadian. Is that? That's...
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is there is genuinely a constructive argument to be made in terms of equities globally, and that has to do with productivity, it has to do with profitability, and it's, it's largely tech. There isn't so much of that in Canada. Right? right? We're a value market, we've got banks and materials and energy, and um, materials and energy is obviously vulnerable to commodity prices, which may be under pressure if the global economy tips over. But the banks are sort of you know, front and center with respect to if the Canadian consumer weakens, and it's hard to see how it won't weaken, going on ahead and the mood is already there and the numbers will probably follow along on that. It's hard to see how the Canadian banks, from an earnings point of view, I'm not worried about credit worthiness, but right. from an earnings point of view, it's just hard to see how those come through.
1: Okay. Fascinating. Um, Corey and David, tell us a little bit what you think about, you know, the, the Canadian consumer going forward, some of the scenarios that David um, laid out there. I mean, did, what sounds drastic? What sounds realistic? <laughs> David Hurley, why don't we start with you?
3: I mentioned earlier the disconnect between statistics and public perception. And one of those would be that the large number of Canadians would think that the country's already in a recession, if you were to ask them. Um, And don't care about what the technical definition of that is, but it feels like a recession out there. And so um, that's 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 already kind of baked in. If we have a hard landing, If we go into an actual deep recession uh, that David is talking about in this country, well, that will certainly be the end of the government. Um, Now you're talking about uh, how it ended for Pierre Trudeau in in the early 1980s and how it ended for Brian Mulroney in the early 1990s with a crushing recession brought on by high interest rates. And it gets to a certain point and you just can't survive that. So, any hope the government has of getting reelected has to depend on consumers feeling not like things are necessarily great in 2025, but that things are on the upswing. It is change that motivates behavior more than at, more than anything else. So it isn't actually what the current point is. It's what's the trajectory that affects how people feel and behave. And the government needs the economy on an upward trajectory by 2025.
1: Fascinating. Corey, your, your thoughts on that, sort of the perception and how long it may take.
3: Well, I, I agree with David.
4: People feel we're in a recession now, but it could get a lot worse. Like if, you know, we don't see a lot of anxiety in the electorate right now around job losses. Like people feel fairly confident that they're going to maintain their employment, even though they're feeling huge cost pre- pressures, you know, whether it's whether it's around mortgages or whether it's just around food prices and energy prices being elevated compared to what they were. I, uh, you know, they're, they're feeling like they have less money. And so, you know, that, that is baked in, but if you start seeing anxiety, uh, around, uh, around their employment situation that could go, you know, sharply vertical in terms of anxiety for folks and, and impacts that that, that will have out there politically speaking anyway, I'll leave, okay. I'll leave the economic analysis to others, but like, <laughs> I, you know, uh, you know, if we end up in that, uh, scenario like the i you know i think the campaign plan for the liberals are to you know light some candles and pray to the four winds cuz like it's going to going to take an act of of, uh, of supernatural order in order to 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 be reelected
1: but there thank you Corey, there is a way to invest your way through this and that ultimately has to be just take us through it again a 60 40 equities less exposed to canada essentially
2: yeah i mean so we we run a, a variety of, yeah. of products as you know and some are a little bit more risk on and risk off whether it be like a global growth portfolio or an income portfolio and they have different mixes um where we're sitting and this has less to do with canada which is the backdrop that we have globally is not bad for equity we think so we have a relatively neutral weighting whether it's E 40 fund or others we're still quite underweight bonds and that includes in canada we've been buying some back as as you know rates got uh roughly to five percent but one of the reasons we're underweight Canada, and and apologies to to David and Corey, this is sort of a portfolio construction arcane kind of issue, bonds haven't done a great job protecting portfolios for the last couple of years. Everybody um, who's watching knows that. Um, They haven't done their traditional work of protecting from equity drawdowns. In fact, they've compounded them because the correlation has gone positive. So what we've been doing, and and we saw this coming to some degree given the rise in inflation volatility, which does it, is we said, the U.S. dollar is gonna be a much better diversifier and protector than bonds will be in this environment. So that means we wanna have more U.S. dollars and fewer Canadian dollars, because Canada is a very cyclical type of currency. So we have a view on on the Canada-U.S. exchange rate, and that's fine. But also, even if you didn't have a view on the Canada-U.S. exchange rate, if you have significant equity risk, having the U.S. dollar is a great hedge or, or protector against that, And the principle on which we're we're running the funds is always risk adjusted return and diversification. And this is a way that you can diversify in an environment where bonds aren't doing the trick quite as well.
1: That's fascinating. it's just amazing to get all of your views. Thank you for the humor, uh, for your contributions. And uh, this went by very quickly. We look forward to the next one. Speaking to you, all the
0: best. funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.